I knew this was a great university coming in, but as I've been here, I've just continued to be impressed with the treasures that we have here. And, you know, I want to be able to tell that story uh, uh, nationally and internationally uh, and, and even more effectively. Welcome to the 457 SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about Southeast Ohio. I'm Atish Baidya. And I'm Susan Tebbin. Dr. Dwayne Nellis' first day on the job as Ohio University's 21st president was back in June. Now six months in, we asked him to talk with us about what he's learned in the beginning of his tenure. We discussed his future plans for the school and how he's handled more immediate issues like the controversial free speech policy. But we also try to learn more about the person leading one of the largest employers in Southeast Ohio. So I'm Dwayne Nellis, president of Ohio University, and uh, I'm excited to be the president of this great university. I've been here uh, five months. It's been exciting to be here. Um, We wanted to just sit down and talk. It is almost the end of your first semester here. Um, How have things been? How how has it been? uh, Has anything surprised you about being here? Uh, no, not necessarily surprise in the sense of, uh, oh, wow, what have I gotten into? But more of, wow, <laughs> this is great. So, uh, you know, my first uh, several months, I've really tried to get it to learn as much about the university and and our extended campus network uh, as I can uh, through public forums and visits and tours and interacting with people. And uh, I guess as I've, I've been on campus and in our, in our regional campuses, uh, it, uh, the, the, the opportunity for discovery has been truly extraordinary. And uh, I knew this was a great university coming in, but as I've been here, um, I've just continued to be impressed with the treasures that we have here. And you know, I want to be able to tell that story uh, uh, nationally and internationally uh, and, and even more effectively. So. It's, it's truly been wonderful, though, to, to be here and, and have that sense of discovery. Mm-hmm. And you're a geology teacher by Geo- trade. Geography. geography. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, my undergraduate was in, actually in earth sciences, which is with a focus in geography, but I took geology, meteorology, geography. And I'm more of a, f- uh, what, what, uh, in, in, as a sub-part of geography, more of a physical geography. And my, my focus is using satellite data remote sensing to look at different aspects of the, of the Earth's surface. And uh, so, uh, I, you know, it's just I enjoy being in the classroom, interacting with students. But I also enjoy the, the opportunities for research and, and uh, writing, and uh, I'm still co-editor of an international journal uh, that is read actually in 79 countries around the world, which is uh, really uh, cool, I think, and uh, published through Taylor and Francis, which is a major publishing firm out of the United Kingdom. And I know I've heard you talk many times about, uh, you certainly have a passion for that still. Um, How did you get into doing that sort of fields of study? And then how did you transition from that to becoming an administrator? So, um, and that's an important question because many people do not start college as a geography kind of earth science major. And I actually started in engineering as a a freshman student because I was always good at math and kind of enjoyed science and and uh, as I took engineering classes I ended up with enough credits to have a minor in engineering but I um, I just I have very broad interests and geography allowed me to make a lot of different types of connections with and, I, and I've been fascinated by travel and experiencing different parts of the world and uh, the discovery that comes with that so geography allowed me great flexibility, and um, so I went on to graduate school, and my, my passion was to be a professor, to interact with students. I love working with students, and, and the stimulation that comes from being around students and see them get excited about learning and uh, working with them on their own research. I knew what I wanted to do once I uh, made geography my uh, earth science as my home, 
and uh, and it was very focused. And I was fortunate to have good advisors and mentors with me. And so um, I ended up finishing my PhD when I was 25. So I just really, really focused on getting done. And and uh, and then uh, my first job was at Kansas State. And um, um, you know, my, my, my mentor at Oregon State, uh, Richard Highsmith, he, uh, he was the department chair as well. And he, uh, I thought it would be interesting in my career to be a department head at some point. And um, that actually happened to me when I was 32. So uh, that, and, and I enjoyed that uh, experience. And when I was a department head, I saw what the dean, because I reported directly to the dean, and I saw what the dean was doing, and I thought that's kind of interesting, and would give me an opportunity with my broad interest to even reach out to further groups and have an impact, and also work with uh, interesting people from a variety of disciplines. And so, eventually, I became a, a dean of arts and sciences, and then that kind of built into to uh, I was a dean at a fairly young age, and. Um, and as soon as I became a dean for search firms, started contacting me about being a provost, and which is like the number two position at the university. And eventually that happened. Uh, and then ultimately when you're a provost, about probably 65 to 70% of the university presidents nationally serve as provosts before they become president. And so once I was a provost, then these search firms start <laughs> contacting, uh, con started contacting me and ultimately uh, moved into the presidency. But but I've never lost that tie back. Sometimes people go into administration, even as a department head, some people will go into to become a department chair or head or director, and they, uh, they kind of lose their academic uh, interest and focus. But that's been so important to me. It's 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 part of what's inside me as far as my passion for discovery and interest in my discipline, and so I've tried to keep my hands in that. Even uh, as I started as a university president at another institution, I had a book uh, come out, an international book on remote sensing. Um, so I've just stayed engaged in that way. When I think of geology, I don't necessarily think of it as a like a people's discipline like where you're interacting with people a lot mm -hmm. geography you mean Ge did i say yeah thanks Susan. we're both doing it i know we're like we're both doing it a teach yeah so sorry, yeah. with geog <laughs> with geography i don't necessarily as opposed to you know some other social science like psychology right, or something right. you don't but so there's but how have you learned as you've grown, have you as your leadership skills have grown, as your management skills have grown, how, where do you learn about managing and working with people and 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 negotiating that sort of set of parameters that come comes with leadership? Right. Well, um, I've had a lot of really good mentors over the years, uh, even as a graduate student, uh, and uh, and and uh, when I started as a brand new professor at Kansas State. I had a great department head who was a real great mentor. And and so I've watched the characteristics of what I felt was effective leadership and tried to, to practice that. Because uh, no matter where, where you're at in an institution or what your job responsibilities are, to me, leadership is not about that I'm the department head or I'm a dean or I'm a president. Every person at this institution has certain responsibilities and they provide leadership by the way in which they embrace those responsibilities. And it's powerful as they contribute in that way towards our success. But uh, I've really gained that, uh, at least my approach to leadership through uh, certainly a lot of reading, observation. And um, at a relatively young age too, I was, uh, uh, was asked to serve as a candidate for one of our national associations in, in geography and ultimately was elected in a track that led to me being president of our national association. And and again, in an in a association of 10,000 professional geographers around the country, 
there's a lot of different competing interests you, you learn to manage. Uh, and geography is a very broad discipline from there's cultural geography through kind of that human environmental interface and then more on the physical side. So what combines that is kind of the spatial dimension, the spatial sciences dimension and how that how how you look at place and how things interface in place. So, but um, but that created great learning opportunities for me and refining my leadership skills. Uh, and then each job has certainly, uh, especially you, you think of the beginning leadership positions like as a department head, um, and at Kansas State they referred to them as department heads versus chairs, but um, you know, I came in uh, young at 32 <laughs> and thinking I could conquer the world sort of attitude. And and um, I've learned a lot through just the experiences I've had in, in a variety of different settings. And and um, uh, so, but but I think my passion, that, that kind of internal flame has continued throughout. But the way, the way, uh, the way I interact with people, the way I try to work towards solutions, uh, I think I've at least tried to to continue to refine that over time. Not that I'm, I've still figured it all out, but I certainly uh, work at that every day. And one of the things I love about being in these positions or in higher education is I, f- I, I'm, I feel like I'm a lifelong learner and that I am, uh, I'm really learning every day by the people I interact with and the things that I see and the opportunities that I have. So, so uh, you know, I certainly don't have all the solutions, but I think the more open I am, uh, the better person I can be as a, as a person that represents this institution. Yeah, I think you touched a little bit on your leadership philosophy. Could you expand on that a little bit? I think uh, this, this idea that no matter what position you're in, you can be a leader in the job that you do and the responsibilities that you have is is one aspect of your philosophy. What That's are right. some other aspects? Well, I believe in what I call constructive engagement. Uh, you know, we're, we, we all have experienced people who are, uh, are, uh, are uh, focused more on the negative elements, and I like to focus on uh, positive elements. Uh, that doesn't mean I ignore challenges, but I like to take areas where we have challenges and, and try to work with people to turn them into opportunities of new ways to look at things that we do. So constructive engagement is certainly important to me. Um, in part, my leadership philosophy also reflects that I, I respect people no matter what their position in an organization. I I believe that we are a better institution. We have over 5,000 people that work at Ohio University, and every one of them in different ways contributes to our success. Uh, the other night I was out, uh, my first uh, Halloween experience on Saturday night, and um, you know I also went to some of the residence halls, and we had pe- volunteer people working, including um, people who are custodians and contribute to uh, our campus, uh, Beauty and maintenance, uh, and talked to one uh, uh, Paula uh, Schoonover as an example over in Nelson, and just hearing her story. She's been here 29 years, and she still has a commitment and passion for the university. And every one of those people make a difference. So certainly, constructive engagement, and then being respectful of everyone, being a good listener uh, and a quality listener. Yeah, there are a lot of people that say that yes, I'm a good listener, but then they, uh, they it's hard for you to even get a phrase in because they want to interrupt you because right. they they want to make sure you they hear you hear their point of view. <laughs> but uh, I think it's that quality. I try to be a quality listener, to be humble, uh, recognizing that I certainly don't have all the answers, uh, but but also uh, being um, not only humble but but also willful in the sense of providing leadership direction you know it's uh, ultimately decisions have to be made uh i i I have strong uh, commitment to shared governance um as part of my uh, my leadership approach and what shared governance to me means is uh really gaining uh perspectives from the various constituencies that represent the university and um 
and um, building around that uh, that input then uh, try to come to some consensus around solutions now sometimes certain sensitive issues are difficult and and ultimately I need to make decisions uh, and I understand that responsibility but people feel more buy-in when they've at least had their voice heard even if in the end we don't do exactly what they want um, and I and I feel in our country we've lost a little bit of that as far as the whole context of civil discourse and the and relative to democracy so uh, again not that I have it down uh, perfectly but I just have that strong commitment so and 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 then um, you know I'm I believe in being strategic as a leader uh, and so trying to set strategic pathways uh, with through the process of shared governance being passionate about uh, what I do so uh, those are just some of the context of my leadership approach you know I think that's so important the sense of trust and um, so I try to remain committed to that as well and if I could bring up um, there's a specific situation right now you're talking about civil discourse and and um, letting the people have their voice. Um, we just had the end of public comment for the public expression policy. Can you go through your thought process as far as that goes? I know that was a, a, pro, um, a product of sort of your thinking and your hearing what people were, were saying about public expression on campuses. And that was something that you did early in your tenure here. Uh, can you talk about what your thought process was in starting that and then also making sure that people got to be able to comment on that as it went along? Sure. And uh, so this is something that is not necessarily unique to Ohio University of what, what we're, uh, the, the dialogue that's going on on our campus right now. Uh, and, you know, we take great pride at Ohio University in, in our history of activism and opportunities for freedom of expression. And I certainly uh, hold the highest level uh, the First Amendment rights uh, for freedom of speech and freedom of the press, etc. cetera. Um, when I came in, the, as part of, uh, really before I arrived, there had been some, um, some issues on campus that, um, that, again, before I arrived, there, there was had been put in motion the idea that we probably need to have a, a more more structure to our uh, the way in which we uh, deal with uh, with potential uh, expressions of, of free speech and protests. Uh, and part, sorry to, sorry yeah, to interrupt, I, but yeah. structure. What do you mean by structure? Um, well, in the context of, uh, and I guess I was going to elaborate a little bit on Go that ahead. as I move forward. <laughs> yeah, but. I guess in the context of, of uh, creating safe environments for, uh, for people. But, uh, but I, think, I think part of the, the context here is that uh, uh, we haven't, at least it's my understanding, that there hasn't been kind of uh, um, guiding principles or whatever we want to call it relative to protecting safety, uh, protecting potential for uh, uh, physical harm to people uh, based on a variety of parameters around that. So, so in the context of we, we, uh, you know, using input from, from a variety of uh, people in uh, Cutler Hall, including our legal counsel and we, f we felt like we needed something as we started the fall semester uh, in place as an interim policy, but recognizing that we were going to get input through shared governance from a lot of different constituencies. So interim policy was put out there by Dr. Skutner and me, and then, um, but we invited uh, uh, input from, uh, from, from really anyone that wanted to weigh in. We had input from alumni. We had input from students, uh, faculty, staff. Uh, just people of interest uh, f uh, relative to the university, and uh, and so uh, and we we extended the comment period. People wanted to make sure they had adequate time to reflect on our interim policy, and uh, so I think the original deadline was uh, October sixth, and we extended it to the twentieth. Mm -hmm. But uh, but now we've have all these comments, and so what do we do with those? And 
and I think uh, there were there were some that felt like this was just an exercise to make it look good, and then we're just going to put in place the the, the policy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but truly, we wanted to weigh the input that we've received, and we asked people to put it in writing. You know, we had I had a number of emails that said uh, this policy is wrong. Uh, we don't agree with it. You should just rescind it. Period. Hmm. And rather than and so I would write back and say, give me your specific comments about why you're concerned about the, the interim policy. So some of those people responded, some of them didn't. <laughs> sure. But the point is we, we've gained uh, a lot of input. I don't know how many pieces of input we've had from uh, a broad range of people, uh, you know, student senate, uh, university student senate, uh, and I just met yesterday with Landon Lama again, but uh, about uh, – they had a resolution. Faculty Senate had a resolution. There were various other groups that had uh, input into this process. And so rather than us just in Cutler Hall saying, okay, this is our input, what are we going to do with it? I wanted to have the different constituencies that make up Ohio University really review these comments and provide some guiding principles for us as an institution as we move forward. And uh, so in reflecting on how to move forward in that context, uh, uh, Scott Titsworth, who's the dean of the Scripps College of Communication, agreed to serve as the convener of that group. Uh, and uh, Scott, of course, being in communication, I think that's important. And also part of the Scripps College includes the Scripps School of, of Journalism. And so I thought that was an important dimension. But then I wanted to make sure that we had the different constituencies, the, all, all the senates we have representatives, or they could either appoint, the presidents could either appoint themselves or a designee. And so some of the senate leaders appointed themselves as the representatives because these are the elected mm-hmm. people of the different <laughs> constituencies. And, you know, uh, Landon Lama is the elected leader of the student body. And, and um and uh, Joe McLaughlin chose to to designate someone. Jackie Wolf, I think, is the person representing him on the uh, on this uh, this advisory group. Uh, but so we have those different constituencies, and then I also wanted somebody who really could look at as they frame these guiding principles legal dimensions, because ultimately, whatever we end up with, we want to make sure that if there's a challenge to that in any way, that it stands the legal test. And so Grant Garber, who's one of the uh, in the office of Gen- the general counsel, was uh, appointed. Um, Dusty Kilgore, who works, he manages Baker Events. Uh, he's also part of our student affairs kind of leadership team. Uh, we wanted to have some perspective from in the, in that context. Uh, Carly Leatherwood, who's um, oversees the university uh, uh, communication as far as. Uh, uh, overall university communication and has a, a strong background in in uh, in uh, um, working with the press I, I we wanted to have her perspective as an ex officio member as well but uh, but so that group will will get together and uh, I think they're already Scott's already had some communication with them and review the comments that have been received. There are different models out there that we might uh, find to. We don't have anything preconceived as to, to, to what the outcome of that will be in the context of the, that we're pushing <laughs> in the sense centrally. I think the key is that we have strong dialogue by this group and, and try to come to consensus within that group about something that would stand up uh, relative to any challenges. The key for me is that we allow freedom of expression, but that we also protect the safety and, and welfare of our students, staff, and faculty, and uh, that the institution recognizes uh, the potential uh, of certain types of activities that could be disruptive to uh, our, our opportunity for regular business. So as an example, if there was a protest going on outside an active class mm-hmm. and these students have paid to be in that classroom and are trying to learn and there's a protest going on outside of that, that's disruptive of their rights of those students in the classroom <laughs> to, 
to as far as regular business of the university. So, so those are sorts of things that need to, we need to be sensitive to. Okay. And we were talking about philosophies. Have you had any experience with these, at, at, whether it be when you were in college or at previous universities that you've run um, in talking about, you know, this worked at this university or this didn't really work in balancing the freedom of expression versus um, safety concerns? Well, um, when I was a student, I was, I came in uh, at a, uh, this is dating me a little bit. <laughs> you don't have to but, say it. <laughs> but I, uh, I uh, was a student at the end of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And also uh, was certainly in high school during a time when we had the civil rights movement and uh, we had the assassination of Martin Luther King and there was just a lot of tension uh, Mm -hmm. in our country. And then Watergate uh, that came while I was in college uh, as well. And um, so, so just kind of the you know the feeling of uh, and and you know and I was a student who we wanted to be able we wanted to be able to express ourselves on different points of view and and uh, and felt uh, that was important as a university administrator um, certainly there have been numbers of protests on campuses that I've been at uh, but I think they they've occurred without you know incident and um, I. I recognize the importance, the breadth of uh, of different points of view that uh, need to be uh, we need to to recognize. Sometimes people want us to try to censor uh, certain types of uh, of uh, people from visiting campus, but I think uh, we have to be real careful about that in the context of of, of the range of uh, free speech dimensions. Sure. It's a very fine line. Um, to me that it seems straddling because when we talk about freedom of expression but then we turn we bring in the word safety to it, it there's this history in this dimension that the rationale of public safety or safety has been has been used in the past to curb people's freedom yeah. of expression so there's that very fine line what would you say to people that that interpret or perceive those types of that type of language um, in that sort of vein, uh, that historical vein. Yeah, and it's, it's hard for me to be the judge on that. We have people that uh, that are trained in really understanding what thresholds are for public safety. Uh, so it's really hard to know uh, what what. Uh, it's not black and white. I don't think in the context of uh, a direct line of where it crosses that threshold necessarily it's but you know i'm probably not the best person to to find to, de- to define exactly where that threshold is i think uh, uh and i'm sure there's a lot of case law related to this uh but but uh but i can appreciate why people think that that could be used potentially inappropriately uh, but at the same time, if, if there's a situation where let's say people are, uh, blocking an egress and let's say a fire or a bomb went off in another part of a building and that, that was the only way out, um, I, you, you, you understand the potential for, uh, concern, but, um, you know, if there's physical harm, certainly that or if there seems to be a threat of physical harm where, uh, you know, our police are very sensitive. We just had an incident, as you know, uh, yesterday in New York City where mm-hmm. with a car and uh, with any concentration of people in one place and uh, if it's it's a tense situation, the police have to kind of evaluate <laughs> the situation and make sure that the public in general are protected in that context. But it's not it's not. I, I can appreciate where you're coming from, but also, it's not an easy uh, answer to just say this is it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that it's subject to the interpretation uh, in each of these, and I appreciate where where p- particular groups would like it defined, and I think. Certainly, uh, if you were to have uh, uh, Chief Powers on this program, he could, he could probably spell that out fairly clearly. Uh, 
and I look to him for certainly advice in that context, as well as legal counsel and, and others. But uh, certainly our Vice President for Student Affairs, Jason Pina, and uh, our Dean of Students, Jenny Hall-Jones, uh, they, they, they are people that are sensitive to that all the time. But um, I certainly I am as well. But. Are those voices in terms of like chief powers and uh, bringing that sort of perspective, are they involved in the, um, the, the, the working group that um, Dean Titsworth is heading up in terms of forming the policy? Are those voices being included? And how transparent is that process in terms of the conversations that are happening um, Understanding, yes, all those voices are are being included into a discussion, um, but can you know Joe Shima off the street walk in and, and be lis- at least listen to and observe that sort of process? Is, or is yeah, that important know, I, or not important? Yeah, I, I you know I don't. Um, I think uh, meetings we have open meeting laws laws in Ohio, so mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure uh, the. Um, dynamics of how they perceive moving forward and that kind of but certainly answering your first question Andrew Powers is part of this group uh, and I think it's important to have his perspective uh, on that dimension where he can clearly articulate that dimension Uh, and I also mentioned uh, Grant Garber and I think Justin Kilgore uh, is part of that kind of group of Jenny Hall Jones Jason Pina that context as well so I think their voices are heard in that context but uh, they're just one of you know several people representing students, faculty, staff uh, that are part of that process. That brings up an interesting uh, aspect of being a president: is you're basically I don't want to say running a camp, but you're <laughs> you're the leader of other people's children. And Allison Hunter, she's a mother, so she she loves asking this question of how do you how do you balance that? How do you deal with the fact that you are these are other people's children they've been raised so many different ways and you have to sort of I guess represent them all and you have to be able to uh, communicate with all of them and be able to 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 do that and and how do you go about doing that well um, you know I'm certainly uh, I want uh, the students that are here I recognize I want the students here to have a great experience uh, I want them to uh, to grow and be transformed by the by not only what happens in the classroom but what happens in our university community uh, on campus as well as off through the experiences they have uh, not only here in Athens but also as they uh, provide service learning uh, uh, engagement activities in our region across the world um, and I think our you know I don't know how many parents have said uh, you know make sure that 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 our my son or daughter is safe at, at your university and uh, uh, they they want them to come here and have a very positive experience and not and certainly I can appreciate that having two sons <laughs> that uh, you don't want them to be harmed in some way that uh, that uh, that hurts them in any way and that's even when I was walking around on Halloween uh, uh, Connor uh, from one of our local uh, news out- outlets was asking me my thoughts about Halloween uh, block party and and I said that for me number one is is for people to be safe. Uh, I certainly want them to have a good time, but to, to do it in a safe way and look out for each other. You know, it's the responsibilities that we have, and uh, and I want my team to to have, to to be committed to that too. The the safe uh, environment that allows this rich learning uh, that to occur that is truly transformational and and for each person that is part of our university to be transformed through the breadth of of experiences. That might be participating in an organization, it might be through their major, it might be a combination of things, travel, it might be uh, social activism through the, the activities that they have that will lead them down a path that is really important as we move to the future. So. You know, I just I care deeply for uh, our students and their uh, and and them having a rich experiences, but I also want them to 
to have a sense of community spirit where they look out for each other. And when they see something happening that they don't necessarily feel is right or threatens the safety of another individual, that they do something about it to try to alert other people. If, uh, and so I think that's important as well. It's just like our uh, we have the green jackets that some of you that you may be aware of with mm-hmm. uh, Halloween block party, and we um, we have these people out. Uh, I think there were around eighty this year that were just out answering questions, but just helping in a positive way. Or if they saw somebody that was uh, maybe needed help uh, in uh, say from a safety perspective, they were there to to provide that assistance. So. So when people send their children here, I want them to have a great experience, but I, I truly want them to, to be safe. And uh, we have a lot of different dimensions of, of what that, that means. Mm-hmm. During your investiture um, ceremony, you had the opportunity to lay out your vision right. and strategy for the, for the university moving forward. Um, you've got sort of two uh, empty spots and two big hires that you need to, to right. fill. You've got the provost position, and then you've got the new uh, VP for diversity and inclusion. Um, what are you looking for in those positions, uh, and, and how does that uh, help shape, or, how's that, or how does your vision inform what you're looking for in those positions? And specifically with this new uh, VP for diversity and inclusion, you're bumping up uh, a position from a provost level to a vice president level that is a direct report to you. Right. How does that all play together? Well, it's, it's important that we have a robust uh, search that, uh, that yields a a uh, high-quality, uh, diverse applicant pool and candidates that we can uh, can embrace in ways that uh, further the strategic pathways and priorities of our institution. And, uh, you know, it's not just about, for diversity and inclusion as an example, uh, I think elevating the position is important uh, from a direct report to the provost uh, to one that reports directly to me as president. But it's also what's around that and and making sure that the entities that are part of not only the direct reports to this person, but also the way that this person is perceived by the deans, the way they interact with the university community more broadly, very, very important. So getting someone who truly understands uh, the history, dynamics of, of Ohio University, but is strongly, strongly committed to to being uh, uh, a strong, uh, strongly committed to being someone who who provides leadership in the area of of, of defining us in a way that is uh, among the leaders nationally as far as uh, 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 diversity and inclusion. You know, we've made progress at this institution in in uh, the last uh, several years, but we're not there yet. We have still a lot of work to do, and we have things that are happening to different student groups on our campus that reflect that there's still some uh, sensitivities there that we need to continue to work on. And so in looking for a new VP for diversity and inclusion, it's important that they they recognize uh, the opportunity that's here, that they have a president who's made this uh, their number one strategic uh, pathway to greater levels of national visibility. and uh, that has the experiences that will take us to that next level as far as engaging the entire university community in, uh, in, uh, and, and providing programs and support in ways that define us really as a leader in this area nationally. The provost search, if I could comment on that uh, too, um, Again, I think we want someone who truly uh, embraces the history of Ohio University, who understands the unique opportunity that this is. Uh, we have, with me being a new president, we also have a vice president for advancement search going on right now as well. And so I think having the, uh, the getting the right person in the provost level uh, will be uh, really, really important. Uh, and as a chief academic officer, this is a position that is where all the deans report through this person and a number of other entities. So we need somebody who really is committed to being here at Ohio University, not seeing this as I'm going to be here for two or three years and then out of here. You know, I want them to really have buy-in that 
that that they want to make a difference at this institution. Why did you make diversity and inclusion your number one strategic priority? Well, I think uh, it's not only Ohio University, but it's uh, it's really our nation that uh, this is a, this is a topic, uh, this is a theme that uh, that I just think. Uh, Will help define uh, creating a, a society that is 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 uh, respectful and brings people together, rather than uh, rather than uh, creates conflict and um, um, really the bifurcation of all these different interest groups. But not that each of these groups shouldn't have their own unique pathways, but. But they shouldn't do it at the expense of putting down and harming um, uh, other entities within our society. And I think we're kind of a microcosm at, at Ohio University of our country and our state. And, uh, you know, we have students from 102 different countries. We have students from all 50 states, even though we have most of our students from Ohio. And even within Ohio, we have students from large urban areas to some of the small rural areas. And so I just think this is an area that we need to continue to make progress in and elevate and, uh, and celebrate uh, as far as our leadership role. And uh, I think we have the ingredients here. We have a lot of people committed to diversity and inclusion at this institution, and uh, we, wanna, we wanna help uh, uh, advance that agenda as a model for our nation because our, our nation is becoming more and more divided in the context of the themes around diversity and inclusion. And, uh, and we have these, uh, th these groups that really help, uh, uh, that have really help, helped or, or added to the divisions rather than creating more of a sense of uh, respect for community and, and that we're a, richer, we're a richer university, we're a richer state, we're a richer nation because of the diversity that we have. So the one thing, you've had a little bit of time to absorb, you know, the area that we live in. Um, the one thing that we ask every guest that comes on the show is, what does Southeast Ohio need and how do we get it? How would you answer that? We have a, an amazing region, but I do think there are certain uh, elements that are really important that our university can help contribute to. Uh, one relates to lighting up the broadband uh, for Southeast Ohio. Uh, that has a lot of implications. We currently have broadband infrastructure throughout Southeast Ohio, but it's not lit up. So mm -hmm. we have young people, K-12 students that go to school during the day, and they may have, they may even have access to iPads and computer technology, but then they go home at night and it's dark. We have uh, communities where they don't have access to broadband capacity as far as the potential for uh, creating more economic um, vitality for those regions. Things like um, we have people who are who are very talented. Who this is a it's a rich cultural part of our state. Who are some of them are wonderful artisans, and if they could market their products through Amazon or through other outlets, uh, that's important. Incubating new business startups. You know, our incubation center, the rural incubation center we have was ranked number one last year in North America. Uh, as they incubate new businesses, now we need to have places that those businesses can land that create op job opportunities for those communities. And uh, right now, um, without broadband access, these industries are looking to other communities to locate uh, that the do have uh, broadband. The other um, issue for our region, and it's not just our region, but our nation, uh, it relates to the opioid crisis. Um, and we have, we have a number of our colleges at uh, Ohio University who have the potential, I think, in a coordinated way to help make a difference in the context of, of a helping to address the, uh, the opioid issue. And whether it's the Heritage College, Health Sciences, the Winovich School, uh, Scripps College, the Patton College through education and outreach, uh, the Business College, engineering's out in these communities as well. 
we need to we, we need to coordinate that in the context of other activities that are going on in uh, these rural areas uh, to truly help transform that. Just as an example, uh, when we had uh, the person, the author of uh, Dreamland, speak on our campus here uh, a couple weeks ago, um, uh, I was at a lunch with him, and uh, Randy Lighty, the dean of health sciences and uh, professional schools, said that. There, just as an example, in Perry County, which is just north here of Athens, um, there are like 15 or 16 different entities working on the opioid crisis, but they're not talking to each other. Our institution could help facilitate the coordination, collaboration, uh, strategic positioning that where they, these entities could make a difference more effectively than they are today. Not that each one is not contributing in some way, but just think of of, with the Voinovich School, that's a natural link for them to help facilitate those sorts of, uh, of activities. But we need to address that. It's, uh, it's been, uh, had a dramatic negative, the, the opioid issue, on many of these small communities throughout uh, southeast Ohio. And um, we, can be a, we can help to address that issue. And uh, so uh, those are a couple things that I think our institution can contribute to in positive ways. In terms of, in terms of the broadband, um, how do you envision uh, the university taking uh, a more active role in that? Is it something along the lines of with the opioid epidemic sort of being more of a facilitator and a bringer together of, of parties, or is it the university actively investing capital and money and leading the way in a very much more, I don't know what the word is. Fiscal way. F fiscal, <laughs> fiscal, like just, you know, more of a presence in that sort of context. Right. I think, uh, Atish, the, the, uh, what I see is a f more a role of as a, as a facilitator, but also strategic positioning, helping because I helping entities, the fed, there are different federal agencies, state agencies I've talked to, but even local entities of government, uh, and bringing in potential investors that might have an interest to uh, to uh, see the the through that investment what the outcome might be. Then too, it's also uh, helping to facilitate programming uh, through people like Jen Jennifer Simon, uh, who has this lights grant through the Appalachian Regional Commission, who's working with I think around 17 counties here in Southeast Ohio, plus some counties in Kentucky and West Virginia. Um, so there's there's money coming in through her grant to these regions to help facilitate some of the some economic development. So coupling that with some of the facilitation that we might do and investment of the uh, broadband through the federal government, state, and local governments, I think that w without us, our, I think our capital is human capital plus uh, potential grants that we might gain from external constituencies or agencies that would allow us to do work with local communities to, to help them utilize uh, this technology in ways that advances those institutions, those, uh, those communities in, in really positive ways. We've only got a few more minutes here, so we wanted to ask you a little bit about your, what do you do outside of <laughs> wearing the suit, being the president? <laughs> and your wife, Ruthie, of course, we want to mention her. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. What hey. do you all do for fun? What do you do to, you know, blow off steam? They go, they, they, they go garnet hunting. Oh, okay, <laughs> yes. Garnet, that's yeah. right. We do like that. Yeah, so thank you for asking. Yeah, and, of course, these jobs uh, for both Ruthie and me are, you know, they're fairly, it's, it's a real-time commitment. So, but when we do have the opportunity to, to for free time, we, we both like to read. Uh, I like reading history. Ruthie reads a variety of different types of literature. Uh, we, uh, we like uh, travel, experiencing new areas. Uh, I enjoy uh, fishing, fly fishing. Uh, I try to make at least uh, you know one trip a year where for three or four days where I have the opportunity. Uh, I'm originally from Montana where I grew up uh, to go to some of the stream mountain streams and, and do a little fly fishing. There's certainly opportunities around here for that as well, which we're excited about. But uh, 
we like getting out and walking. We've been to, you know, Stroud's Run uh, Park. Uh, we've been out to Lake Hope uh, uh, to look around. And uh, and so uh, Ruthie enjoys uh, – uh, she's also really into um, – uh, cooking and this and when she has time to do that we have a lot of prepared meals for us in the context of different events but she's really uh, she has a, an amazing collection of cookbooks from all over the world and uh, so uh, the other night she fixed a, a Thai dish as an example that was uh, really great uh, and uh, so she enjoys uh, things like that and we we both enjoy a, a little bit of gardening um, it's kind of therapeutic again uh, we had this year as an example had a few tomato plants and some cucumbers and things like that just for fun mm. but um, so those are some of the things that uh, we enjoy but uh, but again most of our life is kind of revolves around the different dimensions of the university and we're, we're enriched by that because whether it's going to our Marching 110, uh, we're going to be with them in New York City at the Macy's Day Parade. Uh, to me, we have the best uh, marching band in the land. Uh, I mean, really, it's just phenomenal, the Marching 110. We love – those are points of joy for us, going to Mamad, uh, hearing the symphony uh, from Ohio University, uh, just a broad range of things uh, like that. Uh, we enjoy meeting new people and uh, engaging in that way. Uh, but, but, but we also like to have those those times when we can just be the two of us and and spend time um, again uh, experiencing new areas and uh, and uh, and also the opportunity to read and and reflect on that too. Are you reading anything right now? Kind of in transition. So I do have the the Dreamland book. I uh, just started uh, a little bit of that uh, the other other night, and so I'm thinking about I might pursue that right now. But I, I do enjoy just a wide range of uh, a lot a lot of history uh, that I uh, enjoy reading about. So are you a person that reads multiple books at the same time or you got to read one finish it and then move on to the next uh, a lot of times there's there's uh, multiple although there usually is one kind of primary but then others that I'm reading uh, as well so <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you very much for being with us thank you we'll for the opportunity yeah I appreciate that and, and thank you for the opportunity uh, Susan and Atish I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today as well yeah. thank we'll you we'll see you in six months yeah okay <laughs> okay thank do you do another evaluation oh yeah <laughs>And that does it for this episode of 457 SEO. 457 SEO is produced in the WAB Public Media Telemix studio. Adam Rich is our audio supervisor, Aaron Payne our editor, and Nathan McGuire created the music for the show. Follow WAB News on Twitter and Facebook, and you can find 457 SEO on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and WAB.org slash listen, or search our website for 457 SEO. I'm Atish Baidia. And I'm Susan Tebbin. Thanks for listening. See you next time.